0: Matthew chapter 7, if you have a Bible, we're starting a new chapter as we go through the entire Sermon on the Mount in a series that we're calling Summer on the Mount as as we're praying and processing where in God's Word He wanted to just speak to us. In the times that we live, in the state of our world, it's time to just sit at the feet of Jesus as He explains through this longest recorded sermon of His, uh, many people call it the greatest sermon ever preached, What does it mean to just be a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Christ? How does that make us look? And how do we, are we blessed by God? How are we people who trust in God? So the whole Sermon on the Mount has been very, very refreshing and yet very challenging. And we're going to start a new version of that challenge as we we come to this closing chapter in what might be the most famous verse that you'll hear quoted outside of the church. Uh, as before, I read it. Let me ask you a question: Have you ever come uh, to a church service, listened to the sermon, heard some really great points that were made, and thought, "Man, that would have been perfect for my friend"? <laughs> you know, you, we just in the sermon on the mount, you get some really great uh, moments where Jesus just holds the mirror up to the soul and he tells us, you know, "Don't be a hypocrite. Don't be like the hypocrites who who do everything for the praise of men." And you hear that sermon and you're like, wow, I got to get that into an earshot of a buddy of mine because he really struggles with hypocrisy. Uh, Or last week we looked at worry and the Lord's like, listen, if your treasures are in heaven, they're secure. If you trust in God, he's going to take care of you. Nothing to worry about. And as you listen to that message, you may have thought, oh my goodness, I've got to share this message with somebody uh, that's just came to my mind because they are just full of anxiety, just absolute worry all the time. I got to get it to them. And we all have a tendency uh, to really see the truth of God's word or the need for correction or an area where uh, a life can be improved. We're really good at noticing in other people's lives. And sometimes we're not as good to say, oh, that sermon was for me too, (laughs) And that brings us now to a a portion in this sermon where Jesus is going to call that out. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1. So read along with me, because that's going to be the topic of conversation this morning. It'll come with another sledgehammer to the face, as C.S. Lewis calls the Sermon on the Mount. But what is this saying to us this morning? Verse 1 of chapter 7. Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. If you have the ESV version, it says a log. So just imagine the the difference between sawdust and the log from which it comes. Jesus says, hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet, and turn, and tear you into pieces. I've heard it said that maybe a a generation ago, the, the verse that was just kind of everywhere. If you were going to know one verse from the Bible, it was John 3.16. You'd tune into the football game and you'd see somebody holding it in the back of the end zone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And it's just such a powerful verse to to really kind of portray the, the heart of the gospel. And yet, if you think about what this generation, a verse for this generation that you're going to see in all of the public squares, it may very well be, don't judge me, bro. Like stay away from telling me how to live my life and I'll stay away from your life. And this verse is oftentimes what, what people love the most about the teaching of Jesus because it's like, if I got that one, then you really can't tell me anything about my life. And so this morning, in some ways, we have to define what's going on here. Jesus, in, in one word, is going to say, don't judge, and then he's going to give an example of when you do judge. So there's, in some ways, another riddle or proverb that we need to unpack this morning to help us understand what Jesus is getting at. So to do that, I'm just going to look at this in three ways for us to take this thing that all of us have inside of us, the ability to look out and make judgments, in some ways good judgments, And do it in the right way. It comes up in this sermon because there's something about the way we size each other up that needs to be corrected and redirected. And that's what we're going to look at. First, That first statement, don't judge, we're going to look at judgment reserved. If you hear this sermon preached, and this will be a portion of this morning, you'll hear the qualifier, what Jesus is not saying is to never judge. He says, judge not lest you be judged for with your judgment. So he's not saying never judge, but there is a judgment reserve. There's a way that we should hold back our judgment so that it's just not something that we're broadly throwing around. That's why he says, careful giving pearls to swine. You don't just give jewelry to to the barnyard animals. There's in the truth and wisdom that gives us our motivation for judgment. There is a reservation to it to do it the right way. And then we're gonna look at Judgment refocused because then he'll say, When you judge, focus it like this. And much of the Sermon on the Mount can use the word focus. If your eye is good, then you take in light. There's a focus that happens when you study the Sermon on the Mount into how we're supposed to see what God sees. And the same is true of the God given instinct for judgment. We refocus it, and as we refocus it, we then redirect it, which will be the final part of the passage of scripture that we read. But first, it's judgment reserved, and I'll say it now. The Bible doesn't say to never judge, and it doesn't say to always judge. It's giving us the the framework by which we take the wisdom God gives us and applies it to the world around us. And throughout the chapter that will unfold before us, there will be times when Jesus assumes sound judgment or, in put another way, wise discernment of things. In fact, I, I just listened to another pastor share at a youth camp and the the pastor was asked the question, which I think many of us are asking. So I think his answer is worth sharing because it was good. What would you tell this next generation how would what advice and counsel would you give them so that when they leave the household of faith that they're raised in or the church that they're raised in and they go into the world to college or career how can they survive becoming one of the statistics of what's happening all around us that the culture just swallows youth whole and spits them out on the other side as an atheist or a jaded christian or someone who has nothing to do with the church what's your advice to young people and he said, I have two, and I'll share both with you. One is you got to have convictions. You've got to know what you believe, and you got to stand up for what you believe. Because as soon as you go anywhere, your worldview is going to collide with somebody else's. They always do. You're going to have convictions that other people don't have. Know what yours are and believe what you believe. And let your belief in your convictions be visible by the way you live your life. What are the convictions that we find from God's word, we stand on them, and we believe that they're true? So advice for parents counseling young people, what are the convictions of their life? What's ultimate reality? What is the life? What is the way? What is the truth? And the second thing is he says you have to have sound judgment. This advice is for all of us living in modern culture. Sound judgment is something that all of us need to have because when your worldview is tested, you need to know what is gold and what is dross. You need to know what the tradition of man is and what the reality of God is and worldviews colliding can sharpen things. But you've also got to be wise enough to know when you're giving... You're, you're presented with an opposite worldview or a philosophy of man that actually has no grounding in the truth of God's word. And with sound judgment, you have to cut truth from lie. Discernment is really good. In fact, here's a verse for you as we preach from the word about discernment in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. It says, do not quench the spirit. I love that we are people of the spirit of God made alive by the renewing of our mind, by the accepting of the spirit, because God did not give us a legal code book. He gave us the power of his spirit by which we filter out flesh for spirit. He says, do not quench that. The spirit will convict. The spirit will give wisdom. The spirit will give application. Don't quench the spirit. Test all things and hold on to what is good living in the culture. You're going to leave church, live in the Spirit, and test to see what's part of reality. The the Bible says that God founded the world with wisdom. It's built into the fabric of the design. So find out if something is true by discerning, by the power of the Spirit, what works and what doesn't. So sound wisdom is something that we promote. And yet, Jesus says there's a different kind of judgment than than just discerning how to apply wisdom and understanding. For this judgment, he says, judge not or you will be judged. And we we have to view this through the lens of our entire study. The more we go through the Sermon on the Mount, the more we're reminded of one of the grand themes, which is Jesus saying, at the end of all of of, of the day, what really matters is who you are before God. It's better to be poor in spirit and come to God with need than to pretend you have it all put together and never ask him for anything. That's part of the theme. It's better to allow God to reward you than to find your reward in religious theater. That's part of the theme, to be a genuine person. And part of the way that that you know you're living in a genuine pursuit of a relationship with God and not religious theater and not the glory that could be received from the praise of man is found in your judgment. Why? Because one of the hallmarks of self-righteous religion is comparing your work to someone else's. In fact, oftentimes we find ways that Jesus teaches something on the Sermon on the Mount and then tells a story that completely illustrates the teaching. So for this moment, Matthew chapter 7 verse 1, the story is found in Luke chapter 18. You can turn there if you have your Bible, but I'll read it to you now. This is what it says in Luke chapter 18. It's a story. It's a story that is standing on the truth of not judging lest you be judged. He says this, starting in verse 9. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed within himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Built into his own evaluation of himself and the gratitude of who he is, He's not thanking God for grace and sanctification. He's not thanking God for washing him by the power of the word. He's saying, I'm so grateful that I've elevated myself above other men. And the Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Other men are extortioners, they're unjust, they're adulterers, or even this tax collector. Compared to him, I got a lot to be thankful for. I, I fast twice a week. I give tithe of all that I possess. One of the ways that this lesson always comes out in the teachings of Jesus that you find in his life expose found in the gospels is Jesus going up against the guards of religion of his day. Oftentimes it's the scribes and the Pharisees. In fact, we get a picture of that as he pulls his disciples aside and says, God's going to judge your heart. Do not think your righteousness is going to be good enough if you're like the scribes of the Pharisees. You've got to be better than the Pharisees. He says it in the Sermon on the Mount. But I have to tell you, in all of the years I've preached a sermon warning against self-righteous religion that judges others to exalt yourself, I don't think I've ever preached to an actual Pharisee. I would love to be surprised this morning and someone comes down with the, the robes of a Pharisee and says, I am a Pharisee, I took offense to your message. It's never happened because this is really a, a moment in history where there were religious people represented in the righteousness of Pharisees. But the message is just as valid this morning as it ever has been. The message is for anyone who looks around and, and sees the failures of others in their judgment and looks at themselves and says, I'm so glad I'm not them. It happens. Brace yourself in this setting too. You guys are doing very well compared to non-churchgoers this morning. You're going really well. Right now, you're listening to a sermon preached from God's word. That's a lot better than what other people can say this morning. And yet, when you read the story with a modern emphasis, I hope that we find ourselves listening now to the words of Jesus with a warning for our own tendency to judge others. Do it this way. Two men went up to the church at Calvary Chapel Boise to attend the Sunday service. One of them went to church every Sunday and always, and he helped out in every way that he could. He went to the midweek service and the community groups, and he helped on, on, on all the ministry stuff. And when the basket went around, he always tithed. The other guy had never stepped foot in church in his life. He has no idea how to look the part. And the church person says, man, I'm so grateful for them because I'm pretty sure they're hung over from last night's party. I'm, I'm pretty sure word on the street is they are sexually immoral in choose the buffet of sexual immorality that you could point at someone. I'm pretty sure that they're brainwashed by the lies of this culture and they are going to hell in a handbasket because they are part of the, the problem with the world that I see. Man, I'm just grateful that you can call me somebody who goes to Calvary Chapel every week. Not that guy. There's a tendency for every single one of us to find the person that we're better with, better than, and exalt ourselves. And Jesus says, don't do that kind of judgment. Here's the first truth for all of us this morning. Your sin will never be dealt with by pointing someone else's out. You're never going to get right with God. You're never going to deal with all of the burdens of guilt and shame and the things that you rightfully need to be cleansed of by proving that you're better than the next guy over. And in that regard, Jesus says, judgment shall be reserved. Don't judge like that. There's, uh, there's kind of a, a lesson for this within one of the policies of our own cities. When's the last time... Any of you ever got a speeding infraction? See some hands go up. Um, if you get a speeding infraction, they'll give you a ticket. The Californians among us, go, we go slower here, so just slow down and, and be, be cautioned. And if you are from California, welcome. That's a, that's a, a Boise pro tip. Just go safe, go, go slow. If you do get a speeding ticket and you, def- you decide to fight it, they're going to give you a couple very good things to edit out your defense by. Meaning there's only so many things you can say in traffic court and they've probably heard most of them over and over again. So they started printing out some excuses that they don't wanna hear from you. (laughs) One of them is this. One of the excuses they say, here's not a good reason to fight this ticket is, I was just going with the flow of traffic. Meaning if you come to the judge and you say, I was speeding, but there was other people speeding worse. They were going faster. In fact, compared to them, my speeding's nothing. They were going like 20 over. I was only going 10. That's legal gray area. Everybody goes 10 over. (laughs) The court will say, you now stand for judgment and judgment you will receive. No one else's cases will help you. And this is what we say this morning. If you come to the Lord and say, I'm not as bad as that guy, what you're saying is, judge me by my works. Judge me by the way that I have become righteous in myself. And judge me in contrast of someone that I found worse than me. And what Jesus says, if you play that game, you will lose. And don't we know it? That we're always looking for the next person to judge, to make ourselves feel exalted, if we still live within the ocean of judgment. And here's the quote of the morning. If you're swimming in the ocean of judgment, you will drown by the burden and the weight of your own standard. Your standards will drown you. You judge them and then it will come right back on you. And God says, you want to go by righteousness? You'll fail. The, key, the Sermon on the Mount is to say we are part of a different kingdom. We don't come to God expecting good things because we ourselves have been good enough for long enough. We come now as a child comes to a father and the father knows your needs before you ask. So you no longer have to live within the court of public opinion. So judgment is reserved in that sense. And now Jesus will go on to say, but let's refocus that thing inside of you that wants to judge. Let's refocus it. Verse two, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Jesus is doing what's called flipping the script. We love to see the failure in others to diminish the failure in ourselves. And Jesus says, you do that and all you're doing is pointing out what's happening in your own life. And now he gives us an illustration Verse three, and why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your own eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. The refocusing, the good light shined from the Sermon on the Mount on your life is to take your judgment away from others and back to yourself. That's why that illustration exists. What you see in other people is a speck of dust compared to what is found in your own life. Now, again, this is a riddle that needs to be unpacked slightly because all of us should be hearing this on the same steady ground. Meaning Jesus did not pull out the worst disciple from the crowd right now and say, this guy's got a log. He shouldn't be judging anybody because he is a retribute. All of you others, after he's cleaned up, I'll talk to you next. He says it all equally. All of us should be hearing this And thinking of the person next to us or the person that we uh, have a tendency to be harsh to and say, they've got a speck, I've got a log. Your neighbor has a speck, you've got a log. We all have a log in our eye compared to the speck in someone else. How is that possible? How can Jesus broadly say that this verse applies to every one of us? Think about it. What you can see in someone else's life is a dimly lit angle of what is portrayed publicly one of the challenges of judging from our perspective is we actually don't know very much about the lives we're judging we see big moral failures and they size it up moral failure We see people aligning with political ideals and different tribes that we don't agree with and it's size them up. I see a public angle that's dimly lit that I don't agree with and now I can judge you. And what Jesus is saying, what you know about people's public sin is nothing compared to what you know about your private sin. You have complete access, not just to a a dimly lit angle of your life, but you can go all the way to the depths of your heart and what you've actually thought about and the motives of your life and things that are going on inside of you that with the right circumstances, you're going to snap. What you know about yourself is a log compared to what you can see in somebody else. There's a, a really interesting reminder of the healthy... Cleaning of this. In Hebrews chapter 4, it says the word of God is living and it is active. It's sharper than two, any two-edged sword. It separates even the dividing of the soul and the spirit, joints and marrow. The word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Some of you know this verse to be true just by coming to church sometimes, hearing a message preached and thinking, how did they know that about my life? That's something that I didn't think anybody knew. Well, the word of God does, and it's able to penetrate into the deep inner part of your life. And that is part of the message of the Sermon on the Mount. You better not be judging yourself and your worthiness based off what is seen outside. People can judge you on the outside. God judges you on the inside. And when you read the Word of God, it's applied to your thoughts and the attitudes of your heart. Now, newscast for you this morning. Even the best discernment in the world cannot always accurately judge the attitude of someone else's heart. You can look at them, you can size them up, and you can make your best bet as to what their motivation was or what they were thinking about, but in the end the only person's thoughts and attitude of heart that you can judge is your own. And what's deep down in your heart to really allow God to cleanse that and his word of God to be applied to correct that, to go through the process of what the Bible calls sanctification, to cleanse you and heal you from some of those logs that exist in your heart is a full-time job. It's a lot of work. There's a lot of cleansing that needs to be happening between you, God, and his word before you are supposed to broadcast all of the ways that God wants to cleanse someone else's life. Matthew Henry, the famous commentator, has a really interesting moment in his personal life journey. He he wrote a commentary on on the whole Bible. Many of you may read it, very helpful. Up through the book of John and then someone else finished it for him and it's not as good, just as a side note, if you're interested in that commentary. It says, uh, a man once stole Matthew Henry's wallet and in reflecting on the incident, he examined himself. Isn't that an interesting way to reflect on an incident that someone wronged you in? And this is what he found, four things. He said, first, I'm thankful that he never robbed me before. That's nice. First time offender. <laughs> Hopefully he never robs me again. I'm thankful that although he took my wallet, didn't take my life. Wallets can be replaced. The, the picture here is a reminder from Matthew chapter 6 where thieves are going to get your earthly treasure. So don't worry about them because it's a matter of time. And if the thief doesn't get it, the rust will. Money will grow wings and fly away. He says, I'm thankful he didn't take my life. Number three, although he took all I had, it wasn't much. <laughs> Homeboy robbed the wrong guy. So if you're broke this morning, it's like, cherish that. There's not much to take from you. And then finally, he said, I'm glad that it was I who robbed and not the one doing the robbing. Interesting perspective of wrong and offense. How easy is it to stand on his rightful, just judgment to say that guy is a sinner who deserves hell and I want my wallet back. Instead, he says, there are a lot of things about self-examination that I can be thankful for. How different would we look to the world around us if we asked God to search our heart before we started searching the hearts of everybody else? This happens on a personal level. All revival from the soul to the heart to the mind in your life starts when you allow the light of God to penetrate your life before you're waiting for the people around around you to clean up theirs. So tempting to look around and say, the problem with the world is that party and that group and that tribe and what the people of God are being called to do this morning is say, Lord, we're the light and we're the salt. You've called us to preserve and to shed truth. And here we are, cleanse us so that can happen. It exists on the corporate level as well. Search your church, Lord. Remove all of the sin from our lives. And it is with that heart that church revival can happen because very rarely are the problems of the world everyone else's fault you find a way to have self-examination that turns you into someone who's praising and thanking God in all circumstances and you will find yourself being much less judgmental and much more worshipful. So now we've refocused it from others to self, but the message doesn't stop. He actually gives an assumption that if you're allowing God to cleanse your heart, you're now in a place where you can redirect the judgment towards something that's God-honoring, God-glorifying, because... It is good what he's given us with the ability to know truth and to see the light and to understand what is good and what is evil and what bears fruit and what is dangerous. There's good discernment that we have. In fact, he goes on to say that you could consider that like a pearl, the pearl of great price. We'd give anything to know what God's perfect will is for our lives and our churches and our world. So when Judgment becomes refocused, and we're much more interested in God cleansing us internally than we are f- fixing the problems that surround us. Judgment gets redirected. And I'll share a couple of ways that happens. Three ways that judgment is redirected. One, said in verse 5, First, remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. That illustration does not end simply with self-examination and God healing you. He says, if you are being cleansed, now you can serve others. When you look at someone's problems as a way to prove that they can't see and you can, you're judging with condemnation. But when you allow God to cleanse your heart and now offer sound wisdom to people, you're offering it in love. So the first redirection is from judgment to love or judging to love. From hurting someone with the the way that you harshly throw pearls before swine to gently loving someone and caring for them. I got a a living parable of that in in the family dynamic this week. We were out with our kids and we were going to get ice cream. What could happen on a pursuit of ice cream? Uh, You'd be surprised we get the ice cream and our kids go outside and they're playing and I ended up talking to some people. So, so I come outside about 10 minutes later and my, my wife is clearly flustered. Where have you been? I need your help. Wives, husbands, you know, that, that, that moment where it's like, this is a, we got to get more ground support on this one. And she calls me and I say, what's going on? She's like, these, these boys over here are crazy. And I just look and they're like, you know, classic crazy bully boys. They were throwing rocks and wrestling each other and tackling kids and kind of bossing everybody around. And it was like you know, our fragile little girls were like, well, what do we do with this? And, and my wife is flustered. She doesn't know what to do. So I come up to one of the kids and I say, hey, get lost. Get out of here. And he does. <laughs> and so I, <laughs> I, uh, I felt like a, a victor because I told this seven-year-old to get lost. And... and <laughs> And we're driving home and and we start to do what what the natural tendency is to do, which is to start making our just and wise judgments that have a layer of condemnation. So you look at kids and they're wild and they're bullies and they're not good listeners and they're bad examples and they're hurtful with their words and their actions and their behavior and you think, what a bunch of delinquents. Those crazy kids, they're going to wind up in juvenile hall and that might not be the end of it. Those kids could go, they could go all the way to prison if they keep it up. And then you think, okay, who else can we judge in this? Like, where were the parents? Hello? Like, (laughs) judge the kids. we judge the parents, too. And then it's like, now let's just judge everything. Like, the school systems are broken. Our country's broken. (laughs) The parents are gone. And all we can do is tell them to get lost and protect our family. You ever feel that way sometimes? When instead of, Actual children, as adults acting like children or acting like bullies and being rude and you leave and you've, you've separated and you say, what a waste of humanity. And then my wife gives me a picture of the cleansing that happens when you go from judging to loving. And you think about your own life and the times that you yourself were a rude kid on a playground. And so that night as, as she's, Doing the bedtime routine with our kids, she's like, What are we doing? What example are we setting? That some people are just doomed forever, but we're the good guys. Or when you see a dimly lit angle of someone else's life, don't size them up because you have no idea what's happening in the majority of their heart and their thoughts. So she says, We have to pray for these kids, for who they represent, for all of the the painful assertions we're making about the world around us that that single moms need help and their houses can be chaotic, that, that the school system is not the discipler of your kids, that the government is not going to raise a child in the way that it should go, and we need to pray that the people that have the pearls wouldn't just cast them around, but we would care about people. We go from a place of judging those who we feel are on the outside to loving them and hoping for them, and remembering that God redeems all people from all ages and all backgrounds and we ourselves have been saved from all of the things we don't like about non-believers. We go from judging to loving. And then he says this, do not give what is holy to dogs nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and tear you into pieces. And so now we have another redirect here. And this is a moment unfolding before us where, again, this supports the reality that God gives us discernment. Because he says, there are going to be people that you share truth with, the reality of the gospel with, the just judgment, wrath, and grace of God on the other side with, that want nothing to do with it. They don't want to hear it. They're hard-hearted. They're a reminder of the parable that Jesus teaches about the conditions of the soil as a sower sows seeds matching the conditions of the heart. And sometimes they they fall on rocky ground. But Jesus says something very profound. He says, lest they trample you. And and, and they trample the pearls. They're gone and, and you're attacked because of it. So he's saying, the difference between the swine and the hungry sheep that want to be fed—you'll know by their actions. You'll know by what comes out of them. He says it again as we continue to read, and we get another example of useful discernment. He says in verse thir- verse fifteen, "Beware of false prophets. Beware of false prophets. Judge rightly whether or not you should be listening to some people who proclaim Christ." Come with- They'll come in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And he wants us to watch out for that. But how do we know the difference? They look good on the outside, is what Jesus is saying. It's the inside that's the problem. So how do we judge people's inside? We just said we don't. We let God's word do that. But then he says this, you will know them by their fruits. You do not have to judge the inside. You judge what comes out. And so here's a redirect that that we'll say this morning, and you've heard it in other terms, but we say, we redirect from judging the tree to judging the fruit. Or you've heard it put, we we redirect from judging the sinner to judging the sin. And this is a profound difference that falls right in line with going from condemnation and judging to loving and serving and helping in discernment. And here's why this is so important. I want you to follow with me on a, a thought that I had about this when you judge the sinner, you size them up and you say, I know what you're about. I know what you, political party you believe in. And I know what your sexual ethic is. I already know who what you're about. When you judge the sinner, you're hoping for the sin. It's just a sad reality about the pride of judgment is that we want to be right. And when you size somebody up, you're looking for ways that you can be right. So when they fall, you're like, I told you, I knew that you were someone who was a ravenous wolf in the end. And stick around long enough and you're going to be right about everybody you judge. Everybody will fail. You'll be right in the end. When you judge the sinner, you're looking for sin. But now think about what Jesus is saying. When you judge the sinner, you're hoping for sin. But when you judge the sin, you're hoping for the sinner. What a profound difference that is. When you take the pearl of truth of what God says is wise and unwise, wise and foolish, something that would bear fruit to your life, it would be good fruit that that would align with a life more abundant that's got joy and peace and love and satisfaction and hope for the future and freedom from the past. When, When that is the measuring stick by which you're judging someone, it's not about the tree. Which, hear me, the culture thinks that we're judging the tree. The culture thinks we're saying to anybody that we disagree with the fruit on, a fruit that turns into loneliness or despair or sadness or a broken life or a hopeless life or a life that thinks about ending it all. When we say, this fruit's not good, we got to talk. They may say to you, you are judging my identity. You're judging my soul. No, we're only judging the path that you're walking on because we're afraid it might not work out well. Separating the sinner from the sin is so important. And hear this, does that mean that we never think about the consequences that await for uh, an unrepentant sinner in their sin? No, heaven forbid. The Bible says you've been appointed once to die and then comes judgment, which means we believe in the judge of life. There is a God who made you, who breathed his revelation to invite you into his relationship with him. And in the end, he'll say, what did you do with the invitation, the opportunity, the grace, the love that I gave you? And you will meet your maker and he will judge your life. But we are not that judge. We don't judge the tree. We don't judge the life. We just look at what comes out of it and we make wise assessments. And hear this. If someone hears your, the, the, the assessment that you have in some of the ways that their life path is turning into destruction and they're hard-hearted, it says move on. Don't continue to pass your pearls before swine. Give them to God. He will judge them soundly. You're just representing the, the caution that God wants them to hear. We get another picture of that in, in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus sends out 70 servants And he says, I want you to go to the city. Don't take anything. Just rely on me. When you get there, if you meet a man of peace, which means they welcome you in and they want to hear the word, they want to know what what this gospel that you represent is all about, stay there and eat with them. It's a great model. You bring the truth in love, and for those who are desperate and hungry and thirsty, they're going to be satisfied by it. But then he says, when you come to these other places that want nothing to do with the, the, the gospel that you're bringing, Leave. Don't stick around and argue. Just move on. You take your sandals and you get the dust off. And Jesus says, "It will be better for that. It will be better in Sodom than for that city, because what's going to happen is you're giving them to the judge. We judge the fruit and not the tree." Finally, whenever in the Sermon on the Mount, what I have found in studying this is that where Jesus gives us a caution, he always draws us into this fresh well of the solution. You know, we see that with his warning against religious style praying, when he's like, don't pray like this, where people think because of their many words, they're gonna be heard and they're, they're, they're impressing people with, on the street corners so people would see them and, and, and they'd be like, wow, I'm so impressed. This guy must be an amazing, their reward is that people think they're impressive. Don't be like that. You should pray like this. And he gives an answer. He's like, our father, in heaven. He gives a simple, genuine pursuit of God prayer. And in the same way, in judgment, there's smuggled into this, the answer. Because right after this whole expose on judgment, he says, ask, and it will be given. Seek, and you'll find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. Now, we're going to do a whole study on that particular command that Jesus has. But part of it is that in, in the ways that sometimes we can convolute the the wisdom that we have with condemning judgment or self-righteous judgment, Jesus is now going to say, come over here. Seek me. Look at me. And this is the third redirect that I want to point out to you. And that is from culture to Christ. We live in a dichotomy of times because in one sense, the culture is waving the flag of tolerance everywhere you look. Tolerance used to mean that when you come across a worldview that you don't agree with, that you could soldier on and, and, and find a way to, to live together without warring against each other. Now tolerance means if you find a worldview you don't agree with it, accept it as equal to all worldviews. Tolerance means that everyone has equal access to their own version of what they think is true, and if you disagree with someone, you're intolerant. And it's a dichotomy because we also live in an extremely judgmental culture. This message is preached to Pharisees and scribes in the day and to church people in our day. And what we have to realize is that even though the culture has done a good job at removing God from so many public squares, you cannot remove religion. You study history, wherever you remove God, there is a, a godless religion that will rise up. We saw this in communist Russia. As they removed God, they, everyone fell on the altar of Joseph Stalin himself or faced the consequences. And our culture has removed God, and it's the, the, the void has been filled with self-righteous religion. A religion that says, this is the philosophy, this is the worldview, this is the sexual ethic, this is the politics, this is how you do things. And if you get it wrong, you will be judged, and you will be cast out, and you will be shamed. I was actually talking to a college student this week and we were, the conversation started because he has really left the, 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 the church that he grew up in and he's now in that very common deconstructionist phase of his life and he's questioning everything and he, he identifies much less as a Christian and much more as someone that, that identifies with the, the zeitgeist of the campus. And he says, you know what's funny is that I almost agree with everything that the, the campus philosophy is. I agree with their sexual ethic. I agree with their version of government. I agree with their jaded view towards religion and the danger of Christianity. I, I actually think all that's true. But you know what's weird is I feel like I'm walking on eggshells now more than ever. Have you ever felt that? That you're one wrong word, statement, idea, philosophy away from colliding with the culture that you live in. We live in a culture that needs this message now more than ever. And we have to be countercultural. Because we actually belong to the righteous judge. The judge that gives us the inclination that there is a right and a wrong. There is a foolish and a wise. There is a just There is an unjust, there is an unrighteous, and there is a righteous. The standard for all of that is the righteous judge, Jesus Christ himself. And so we have to fall under his way. And so what did it look like? I'll end with a story that we find in John chapter eight. And I hope that some of you are here out of curiosity. I can't think of a better week to come to church and hear the gospel than a week about judgment. Because the gospel means good news. That's why we preach it. And there's good news for whatever culture you go into, but the good news, the best news for our culture right now is there is a way for you to be freed from the burden of judgment. Here's a story that gives us the hope that all of us who follow Jesus have decided to believe in about what it means to no longer live under the fear of condemnation It says, early in the morning, Jesus came to the temple and all the people came to him. And he sat down and he taught them. What a picture. Like we said earlier, people always wanted to follow him and what you're about to be introduced to him, that wherever people were following him, they were ready to fight him. Because he violated people's religion. And he challenged their self-righteous posture. And so as he's teaching people the words of life, here's what happens. The scribe and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And they placed her in his midst. And they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. So what do you say? Interesting addition by the gospel writer John. It says they tested him that they may have some charge to bring against him. They want to find fault in his judgment. They want Jesus to be put into a an impossible conundrum, which is do you show mercy to a woman that deserves nothing but the law and death? This is our culture. We drag people that you've dug up some dirt on into the courts and you say, how will you judge them? There's no way out. If you don't judge them, then you're wrong for not adhering to the philosophy of the law. And if you do judge them, There's no mercy and there's no grace and there's no hope for any of us. So what does Jesus do? As he says this, it says that Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. If you want to condemn others, if you want to judge others, you better be sure that you don't have anything that you can condemn yourself for at the same time. Say it to the culture 21st century America, are you so sure that you're the right judge to be condemning all the people you disagree with? Are you sure that you're the judge that should rightfully tell people when they should feel ashamed, when they should be accepted? when they've done enough to earn back the trust of the community, to be accepted back in? Are you sure? Because if you've got any sin, you're next. When we judge people, everybody dies. It's just a matter of time. You stick around long enough, and your judgment will be too heavy for you to stand. You swim in the ocean of judgment, and you will drown by the weight of your own standards. And so we're looking for something different we're looking for what Jesus will go on to say a narrow way, something that is so broadly different than this culture, this human nature inside of us that existed 2,000 years ago where you drag people before the law and we say either condemn them or you're wrong. Once more, Jesus bent down, wrote on the ground, and when he heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. This interaction with Jesus is what separates us from people who live in the self-righteous judgment of this world to people who are what we are by the grace of God. He who has been forgiven much will forgive much and love much. Your love of God is built on and defined by this moment in your life. Are you living for the approval of the court of public opinion? If you are, it's a matter of time before the verdict is guilty. Or do you live before the one person who never sinned? The one person who never failed, never violated the perfect law of God, to love perfectly. And the gospel says that the one who knew no sin will take on sin so that you can be forgiven. If we're the judge, everybody dies. If God is the judge, one person dies. And the gospel is forever believed in that person. God so loved the world, he gave his son to... Take the wrath of judgment that was rightfully deserving to you upon himself. That's what the righteous judge does. And you will not find a righteous judge apart from the judge of all reality, Jesus Christ. And so the question of this morning is, do you swim in the ocean of judgment or live in the economy of grace? and you'll know by the way that you treat others. No one knows what Jesus wrote in the sand. You could probably hear countless sermons giving really good guesses. But for the purposes of the morning, it might be worth thinking of it as an actual line in the sand. And the line in the sand cuts across your own heart. And the question is, what does your judgment tell you about your own condemnation. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. You come to that line in the sand and you cross the line. That is when you decide to follow Jesus with your whole life and you accept the free gift of your sin being put on his cross and him remembering it no more go and sieve no more. Go and live free. Go now and represent grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness to whoever you see. That's the side of the line that Jesus remains on. But there's another side of the line. It said that everyone crossed. Anyone who was looking to condemn that woman based off their own righteousness, nobody could stand. Which side of the line are you? As you think about that question, we're going to sing one more song. It's a beautiful song. It's called Be Thou My Vision. And I can't think of a better song to end because everything that Jesus is trying to get us to know about living life, being blessed, being free from the religious theater, being free from self-righteous judgment, is fix your eyes on me, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of the faith. If Jesus doesn't condemn the woman, who are you to do it? If Jesus can offer forgiveness enemies, who are you to harbor heart uh, bitterness in your heart? Lord, may you be the vision by which we see this whole world. May we see those who are outside the family of faith, not as people that we condemn, but as people that God wants to save. May we see all of the ways that we disagree with one another and we see our tribal lines. And may we say, Lord, search my heart. Remove the plank from my eye so that I can help others see the way. I mentioned some of you might be here just interested this morning. You picked an amazing morning. Today's the day. The line in the sand has been drawn. Your good news message this morning is that you can leave here and Jesus says, anybody who's with me, there's no condemnation. Your guilt, the, the, the things you've done in your past will no longer come back to haunt you and kick you out of the tribe. The things that make you feel like a failure or ashamed or the, the, the revelation of your own judgment in your own heart, none of that will be used against you because you are made clean and washed by the blood of Christ. All you do is say, I want in. I accept the free gift. And Jesus will say, no longer are you condemned live free in my kingdom and for everyone else may we be people who live this out our judgment starting with our own hearts going from judging to loving from the tree to the fruit and from the culture to christ